morning. As Tim mentioned, my name is Christian. For those of you that don't know me, if you notice an, uh, an interesting accent, it's because I'm from Guatemala. So <laughs> just like to point that out in case I mess up some words. You know, I was about to read Dagon uh, instead of Dagon. But Dagon sounds kind of like a southern thing, you know, like Dagon it. And so I'm going to stick to Dagon probably. Uh, anyways, before I get to the message... I wanted to read a, pa- a little passage. You know, I am a preacher, so I love C.S. Lewis, okay? And so I want to read a passage from Prince Caspian, and most of you guys are probably familiar with it. But there's a section at the beginning of Prince Caspian when Lucy finally sees Aslan. And this is the second time she's seeing Aslan in, in, um, in the land of Narnia. And she says this, uh, Aslan said, Lucy, you're bigger. That is because you're older, little one, answered he. Not because you are, I am not, but every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Now, why am I reading this? Because I want to invite you guys to our new equip class. We're going to have an equip class called Do You Believe? And the reason that we have these classes is because the more we grow in the knowledge of our Lord, the bigger he is in our eyes. And so I want to invite you, not only if you are a new believer, if you're a new believer, this is a class for you. If you are an older believer, this is also a class for you. We're going to be going over uh, eight doctrines, basic Christian doctrines, but that never cease to amaze me. And so let me invite you. Uh, If you haven't yet, please go to our website and sign up for our class. It's going to be happening. uh, It starts on March 6th, and it's going to be uh, from 8 to 9 a.m. I know it's a little early, but let me tell you, it's going to be worth it because we're going to be talking and beholding the beauty of Christ. And so please come. Please join us. Uh, I think this is important just as you make time for other things. I think it's important that we make time for us to grow in the knowledge of the Word of God. And so with that said, uh, let's get started with the message. Um, this morning, I, as Tim mentioned, I'm preaching from chapters 5 and 6 from 1 Samuel and the first two verses of 7. So it is a bit of a, uh, of a long passage. So I want to go ahead and get started. Uh, and I want to start this morning by a, uh, with a quote by A.W. Tozer. Tozer famously, famously said, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And let me read that again. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And many of us have probably heard this quote before, or maybe we've read the book where it comes from. But this morning, I want us to look at some of the context of what, where this quote is found, because I think there's a lot more to be said. Um, and, and I think this will help us understand the importance of today's passage. Only a couple sentences later, Uh, Tozer continues by saying, worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. Then he says, for this reason, the greatest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. Do you see what, God, what, what Tozer is saying here about God? He's telling us that the thing that you think about God is the most important thing about you. The, your image, your mental image of God says a lot about you, and it will help you live your life in a certain way. The most important about, about you and me is what we think of God deep in our hearts. Because, he says later, that we tend, by a secret law of the soul, to move toward our mental image of God. 
And as we will see in today's passage, acting in the mental image of God can be costly when our mental image of God is distorted. For this reason, uh, I wanted to share this quote with you because this story is actually going to make sense for us if we understand that what we understand about God is so important about us. So with that said, let's go to our first, uh, our first point. And our first point doesn't come from the passage today, but I do want to use it as an opportunity to give you some context as to what's been going on. Last week, Tim preached from chapter 4, which tells pretty, a pretty embarrassing story about the people of Israel. You may remember the Israelites went into battle against their neighbors, the Philistines, and they lost. <laughs> they went to a fight, and they absolutely got destroyed the first time around. Uh, and so the second time around, they decided, you know what, we're going to pull out our secret weapon. And so they thought, we're going to use the Ark of the Covenant, and we're going to use it for our benefit. This is our secret weapon, and there's no way we're going to lose because we're going to have God on our side. Now, before we continue, some of you may be asking, what in the world is the Ark of the Covenant? And that's a really good question. And I do want to take a moment to explain this briefly. But the Ark of the Covenant is a symbol. When God made a covenant with Moses, he instructed the people of Israel to build an Ark of Acacia wood. This was um, an Ark that was the size of about a chest. It was a box um, and by the way, when we say ark, we mean box, not boat, if that makes sense. Uh, different <laughs> Noah's ark. Uh, but this box was covered uh, by gold, and its cover, in its cover, there was a plate made of gold with an image of two cher- uh, cherubims whose wings were touching, as you may have seen in the picture. This was called the mercy seat. And between the, the, the touching wings of the angels, that represented the presence, the presence of God among his people. Now, it's important that we know that this was not a depiction of God, because that would have been breaking the second commandment. But this is a symbol that represents the presence of God, a physical reminder that the presence of God was among his people. Now, unlike the statues of their, or the idols around Israel, the Israelites did not have a depiction of God. They had a reminder of usual, of usual visual representation of the presence of God amongst them. God in his kindness had given them the ark for them to remember that he is not a God who is far off, but he is a God that is near those he loves. And what did the Israelites do with it? They weaponized the ark. They use it, as Tim mentioned last week, as a lucky charm, as an amulet. They take it to war thinking, because we have this, God's going to be with us, and we're going to win for sure. We saw last week that God is not a genie in a bottle (laughs) to come out whenever we need him. So what happened? Our mighty king, though he is mighty and though he is a king, allowed for the Israelites to be humiliated before the Philistines. Because you see, God does not allow us to use him as a charm. As a genie in a bottle, he is a mighty king for us to submit to. So when the Israelites use him as a charm, things don't go well. They're destroyed by the Philistines. And the Philistines then take the ark and bring it to their temple. And they use it as as a trophy. And this is where where we pick up this morning. But here I want you to see that our mighty king is undefeated even when his people are humiliated. 
Let that be a reminder for us as believers today. Now, how about we go to chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. I want us to read these five verses uh, to see what uh, we're, we're talking about this morning. Um, actually, I am so sorry. Tim just read these, and because of time, I think it's better if I just address it instead of reading this passage that has already been read. But anyways, our story resumes when the Philistines get home. They take the Ark of God, and they display it in their trophy room, right? Like their temple was like a trophy room. They put him next to Dagon, their God. They thought that they were adding a God into their collection. One more to the shelf. But boy, were they wrong. They thought that they had beat God, they had defeated him, now we're going to put him in a shelf as a trophy. As you can imagine, our God, the mighty king of the universe, is not okay with this. The Philistines made a fatal mistake. Once again, they acted upon an incorrect understanding of God. And not unlike what happened to the Israelites, they soon found out that their ignorance and pride would be very costly. Now here are a couple things that we can learn from this passage. Number one, our hearts are bent towards idolatry. C.S. Lewis uh, coined a term called chronological snobbery, which is the instinct we have to think that we are better than those who came before us. We think we are more enlightened. We think we know better. We think we're different, and so we say things like, okay, boomer, because we think we're better than the generations that came before us. The reality is, though, that we are not any better than the Philistines, and we might be tempted to think that the Philistines worshiped gods that were made of wood and stone, and we don't do that. We don't have idols, but the reality is that we are just as prone to idolatry as the Philistines were. Just as the Philistines worshipped their god Dagon, who was the god of the harvest, we all have um, idols that we worship. And I could say it with my own words what this means, but actually uh, I think David Foster Wallace is a little bit more eloquent than I am, so I'm going to read his words. And though he wasn't a believer, I think he has a lot to say here. David Foster Wallace said this. He said, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel like you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, bromides, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The trick is keeping the truth up in front, in front daily consciousness. In daily consciousness, I'm sorry. So let me ask you this morning, what is your Dagon? What is the thing that you think is so important and vital to your life that you posture your life towards that thing? Let me ask you this morning, what is it that you look to for comfort and hope for your future? What is it that makes you feel secure and safe today? What is it that consumes your thoughts when you wake up in the morning and when you go to bed at night? What is the thing that you say, if I only had that, my life would be finally right? Because if it is not the God of the universe, you're in big trouble. Number two, idols are only as powerful as those who worship them. Notice that Dagon falls on his face. The Philistines prop him up in a shelf. 
And then, you know, they, they, prop, they put the Ark of the Covenant in itself next to Dagon. And the very next morning, they wake up to Dagon fallen on his face. And so what do they do? I think the author of 1 Samuel tells us almost with a grin. I can see him writing this with a grin in his face. They had to pick him up and put their God back up where he goes. You see, idols are only as powerful as those who worship them. Unless you worship the God of the Bible, the creator of all things, the things you live for will not last because you do not last long. Number three, our idols are powerful, uh, sorry, are powerless to deliver what they promise. Verse 4 tells us uh, that the second night, Dagon didn't just fall on its face, but his hands and his head were cut off. The hands were a symbol of power and the head was a symbol of authority. And here we see that the God of the Bible is not just one God among many, but he defeats and humiliates Dagon, the idol of the Philistines. He is the mighty king. He is a jealous God and a consuming fire, as it says in Deuteronomy 4. And so God humiliated Dagon and proved him to be powerless. Well, let's keep reading. I want us to see that our mighty God's wrath demands propitiation. And those are big words, so let's read the passage and then we'll talk about it. Verse 6 says this, The hand of the Lord was very heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, But Ashdod, both Ashdod and its territory. When the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of God, of the God of Israel, must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so the tumors broke out of them, out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as, as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent, before, uh, they sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that he may not kill us and our people. For, here, for there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us what we shall send it to um, what we shall send it to its place. Tell us, I'm sorry, with what we shall send it to its place. They said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty. But by all means return him a give, a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. So here I want us to notice that God brings judgment to the Philistines. God displays his holiness through judgment. Here we learn that God strikes the Philistines then, then in two ways. First of all, he afflicts them with tumors. Now, these tumors, as the author mentions, might be a very elegant way to say that God struck the Philistines with, well, hemorrhoids. Um, <laughs> I learned from Derek Thomas that the, uh, the Jerome's Latin Vulgate translates this verse as, and this has to be my favorite translation, uh, the Latin Vulgate says it this way. It says, he smote them in the more secret parts of their posteriors. 
Uh, <laughs> so the first plague is tumors. Um, and the second plague was a plague of mice uh, that was ravaging their crops. Now remember that Dagon is the, the, the god of the harvest and God sends mice to ravage their crops. Now, there's also some, something that there may be a connection between these two things. In, in London in the 17th century, there was an outbreak of what they called the bubonic plague, and you may have heard about it. And this was an outbreak of tumors uh, that came from bites of rats. And so they think that there may be a connection, that the way that God judged them was with the bubonic plague. Uh, I personally prefer picturing the Philistine leaders coming to their meeting with a donut pillow under their arm. Um, <laughs> but the reality is that Hebrews 10.31 tells us that it is a fearful thing to fall into the, ga- into the hands of the living God. And that is exactly what happened to the Philistines. They are now in full panic mode. <clears throat> they are freaking out because people have tumors, because there's mice everywhere. People are dying left and right. You see, we see... In uh, the Philistines, in, verse, uh, in chapter 6, verse 2, they ask this question. They say, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Which is a really good question. Because you see, the Philistines recognize that they have set themselves against God. They realize that, as Paul tells us in Ephesians, they have become objects of wrath. So you guys want to talk about God's wrath for a minute? <laughs> because who doesn't, right? <laughs> The reality is, I think, that sometimes as Christians, we treat the wrath of God like the Madrigal family treats Bruno. We just don't talk about it, right? Um, for those of you that did not get the reference, good Lord has spared you um, from the latest Disney movie. <laughs> but we don't often talk about wrath. We don't talk about the wrath of God. And I think we often end up acting like the Philistines that handle, handle their gods a certain way, right? Sometimes we feel the need to pop up our, or prop up our God so, just so that you, he can be seen only from a certain angle. That is flattering. We like to put him in a shelf and display only part of him because we're embarrassed of some of the harder things that the Bible says. But here the reality is that God is a loving God, but God is also a God of wrath. Now you may be thinking, that does not sound like the God that I've heard about because I keep hearing God is love, and hey, absolutely He is. And I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I want you to hear this. God's wrath is directly related to His love. It's direct, God's wrath is directly proportional to how much He loves us. And for this to make sense to you, well, let me give you an example. If, I, if I'm walking up in the street and I see someone punching a rando in the face, I'm going to be upset. I'm not going to be okay with that. But if the person that's being punched in the face happens to be my wife, that wrath is going to escalate a lot. (laughs) Because our wrath is directly related and proportional to our love. And so God's wrath is big, and it's a big deal. But God's wrath is directly proportional to his love. And because God is holy, he will not let uh, sin go unpunished. And this, 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 this story is an example of that. The Philistines realize that they are the objects of God's wrath, which they are 
but not only because they stole the ark, but also because as all of us, they were born in sin and, for, and fall short of the glory of God. They realize that the wrath of God demands to be appeased. They're asking the question, what do we have to do? What do we do with this ark? They realize God is against us. We need to appease him. Now they understand this. They understand there needs to be payment for their sins. Notice how they're not bothered by this. It just made sense to them. Now in 2021, it's a little harder for this to make sense to us. But you know what? God's wrath calls for propitiation. And propitiation is really just a fancy word to say that God's wrath needs payment. It demands payment. It needs to be appeased. You see, God cannot leave sin unpunished, like I said. And as I mentioned a couple of sermons ago, Jackie Hill Perry said that to want God to withhold justice is to want God to make himself an abomination. It goes against his nature. The world today wants a tolerant God. Our God, however, cannot allow sin to go unpunished. But let me ask you this morning, which God is more loving? A God that tolerates sin and isn't moved by sin and injustice? A God that only says, sure, no big deal, you're forgiven, but it costs him nothing? Or our holy God who judges, but who judges fairly? A God that not only punishes sin, but is also willing to pay for the sin that we may be saved. Who is a more loving God? The God that's tolerant and forgives us all. Forgives it all at no cost to himself. Or a God that sends his son to pay for our sin. So the Philistines understand that this, they understand this, and they correctly diagnose the problem. They say, hey, we have made ourselves the enemies of God. We need to fix this problem. Unfortunately, that, you know, a diagnosis doesn't always mean that we have the right solution. And so the, the Philistines, though they, they diagnose the right problem, they come up with a solution which just happens to be an incorrect solution. And that leads us to our next point. Verse, in chapter 6, verses 4 through 10, it says this. It says, What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten the, uh, his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Notice that they're saying, perhaps, perhaps this is enough. They don't know, but perhaps. Verse 6 says, Then um, why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two, and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke. And yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home, away from them. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put it in a box at its side um, and put in a box at its side the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up the way to its own land, uh, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know uh, that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. 
The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. After their correct diagnosis, the Philistines come up then with a plan. They recognize payment needs to be made. Payment needs to be made um, for their sin, so they decide to send a guilt offering. Now, do you see what the Philistines are doing? They are trying to manipulate God through transactional religiosity. They are used to the idols, and, and their idols can be bribed. Their idols can be manipulated through religious rituals. The thing is, actually, the guilt offering that they're, that they're talking about is not a bad idea. <laughs> it's actually not a terrible idea at all, because it actually goes according to the law of God. The problem here was that their hearts were far from God. And they were thinking that only through a religious transaction they can appease God. They think, if I do this for him, I can earn his favor, and then he will stop. Church, our God cannot be bribed. Our God cannot be bought. And yet, isn't this our default MO? Isn't this how we operate? For those of you that have children, has your child ever found a random penny laying around? My kids are little experts at finding the grossest, grimiest coins ever. We'll be at the park and they'll find the grimiest penny that's rusted on one side and on the other side there's like gum, hair, and enough fluids to like get a DNA sample for like to be used in, <laughs> as evidence in the court. Like, it's just absolutely gross. But try to pry it open from their hands. It's nearly impossible. You see, kids will hold on to the grimiest, grossest little penny they will turn around and try to go on a shopping spree at Target. And the reason is this. Kids have no idea of, how, of the worth of money. And so what they do is that they overestimate how much a penny is worth. They find a penny and they want to buy a bunch of things with it. Now, why am I telling you this? You and I know that the penny is worthless, and yet for them it's a treasure. They think it's worth a lot more than it truly is. It's cute, it's funny, and honestly, sometimes a little gross having to deal with those coins. But the reason I'm telling you this is because in our relationship with God, we tend to act the same way. You see, we're all sinners, and we are all disqualified from the glory of God, and we need to be saved. Payment needs to be made for our sins. And God has actually already offered His grace as a gift to be received. What do we do? No matter how generous God's gift of grace is, our default is to hold on to the grimy penny of our good works. And instead of receiving his righteousness as a gift, we come to God with a grimy penny trying to purchase forgiveness, trying to purchase salvation. Church, the problem is that salvation is not for sale. And our works are not even, first of all, they're not nearly enough, but they're also the wrong currency. You see, just like the Philistines, our default is to want to bribe God and purchase that which can only be received. As humans, we often find ourselves bringing our works before the Father. Isn't that true? Thinking that we can buy His favor. If you don't believe me, well, let me give you an example from your own life. I don't know you, but I know that when you sin, your default is not to run to God, but to want to clean up your own mess. To make yourself worthy of God to then come and ask for forgiveness. 
You see, we want to buy salvation. We want to earn God's favor. Church, we cannot do this. We cannot buy forgiveness. We cannot buy salvation. We cannot buy God's favor. Now, John Gessner explains it like this. He says, Nothing now stands between the sinner and God but the sinner's good works. Nothing can keep him from Christ but his delusion that he has good works of his own that can satisfy God. All they need is need. All they must have is nothing but alas, sinners cannot part with their virtues. They have none that are not imaginary, but they are real to them. So grace becomes unreal. Their eyes are fixed in a mirage. They will not drink real water. They die of thirst with water all about them. In Christ, God has already made provision for us to be saved. And you may be asking this morning the the old question, what must I do to be saved? And And the answer is this, nothing. Just repent and believe. You do not have to bring anything to the table to be saved. All you need is your need. All you need is your need and a contrite and broken heart that the Lord will not reject. Let us be careful that we don't try to purchase our salvation because that's our default. Our default is to point to the things that we do for God and tell God, see, I deserve it. When the reality is there's nothing we can do to earn his favor and his grace. Which leads us to our last, one before last point, actually. Our fifth point is this. Our mighty king takes initiative to be near his people. So I want us to keep reading chapter 6, verses 10 through 14. It says this. It says the men did so. Remember that plan of the two cows and sending the ark? The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and and the images of the tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing um, as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their, their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they, lifted, when they lifted up their eyes, they saw the ark, and they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua Beth Shemeth and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as burnt offering to the Lord. So you see, the Philistines come up with a silly plan. They tie um, the ark to two yoked milk cows, and they send it on its way. They're testing God. They're sending the ark with a gift for God to try to appease him. Now, I want us to learn two things from this. First of all, God shows him, uh, himself to be sovereign over the foolishness of our plans. What do I mean by this? You see, the plan that the Philistines came up with was kind of silly, and yet God causes the, the cows to go exactly where he wants them to be. Beth Shemesh was actually the city, a city of Levites who were tasked with taking care of the ark. So the ark is going to the right place. Through the foolishness of the Philistines, God in his providence sends that cart of the ark to where it needs to be. 
The second thing I want you to notice is that God takes the initiative to find his people. Isn't this amazing? That after, what the, uh, what, after the way they treated him with contempt, God chooses to find his people. Was this because they deserved it? Absolutely not. He does that because he is a covenant God who is faithful even when his people are not faithful. Church, this is not just the story of Israelite. This is of the Israelites. This is the story of every single one of us. That in his loving providence, God finds his people where they are. Now, we often like to say that we found Jesus, but the reality is that Jesus found us. He pursued us. And in his kindness, in his sovereign, um, his, in his sovereignty, sorry, even in our foolishness, he uses the circumstances of our life to reach us. This story is not only for the, you know, about the foolish Israelites, like I said, but this is the story of you. This is the story of me. If you're here this morning and you do not yet know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're here today and you have not called upon the name of Jesus to be saved, let me ask you this question. Is it possible that God and his loving providence brought you here this morning for you to hear that he has offered salvation to you. Amen. Would you please consider this as we continue? This leads us to our last point this morning. Our mighty king wants to be known by us. So let's read. Uh, this is a bit of a long portion, but I'm actually going to skip a couple of verses, so I'll, I'll let you know where I'm skipping. Verse 15 says this. It says, And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it in which were the golden figures, and set, up, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh, I've said this a hundred times, and I still mess up. Anyways, and the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on the day of the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. Now I'm going to skip to verse 19 where it says, And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? What a great question. And to whom shall we go up away from us? Shall he go up away from us? So they sent the messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. And then hear this, verse 2 says this, From that day the ark was lodged in Kiriath-Jerim. A long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So now we see the ark finally makes it to where it needs to be. God, in his providence, brings the ark back. You know, it's all set up for a happy ending, isn't it? Well, no. <laughs> you see what happened? After God, in his patience, comes back to find his people. Now, bear in mind that this is chapter 6. This is nothing in the whole story of Israel. <laughs> This is almost the beginning of the Israelites' foolishness and rejection of God. 
And yet, God, not only knowing what they have done, but what they will do, comes and finds his people. He is kind. He is loving. He is patient. And he finds them. He makes himself obvious to them. Surely the Israelites have learned the lesson, right? No. (laughs) The first thing they did was to grab the ark and the golden mice and they put them on a great stone, which is weird. You don't do that. The ark was meant to be hidden and closed. What do they do? They put it in their own trophy room. They come up with their own trophy. They grab the ark of God and they set it up for everyone else to see. And because of this, God struck 70 of them. If we're honest to our 21st century sensibilities, this sounds a bit heavy-handed, doesn't it? God killed 70 of them because they were looking at the ark. The reason this is significant is not because uh, sorry, the, the, the reason this is significant is because not unlike the Philistines, they were displaying the Ark of God <clears throat> like a trophy. The Bible tells us then that they got struck because they looked upon the Ark, which can mean two things. It can either mean that they looked inside the Ark, or it means that they were gawking at it, looking at it like a trophy. Either way, they treated the Ark with contempt. And our God, who is good, who is kind, who is patient, who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, struck them dead. Was he heavy-handed? No. They went from treating the ark of God as a weapon or a tool to be used to using it as a trophy, showing themselves off to be better than the other nations. Now don't forget that this is the end of chapter 6 and the beginning of 7. So we're about to find out that the people of Israel are going to be asking for a king because they want to be like the other nations. They're about to reject God as their king because they want to look like the other nations. The people of Israel used the ark. They displayed the ark as a trophy because they wanted to be better than others. Now, I want to take a moment, and I want to be really careful in how I see this. And may I ask you, would you give me the benefit of the doubt as I say this, okay? My wife's already nervous. Um, Let me be careful how I say this. But what happened here cannot only be true of us as individuals, but it can also be true of us corporately as a nation. I'm obviously generalizing here. There's always, you know, there's always exceptions. But, you know, we live in a divided nation where, in general, one side is prone to using God as a charm or a weapon in the culture wars. At times, they weaponize God. At times, they claim God for themselves and they weaponize Him and they use it against others. They claim God is on their side. They claim that they want God back in their schools. But it is often said as if God is a means to an end. A rabbit's foot of sort. If we could only have prayer back in our schools, God will bless the nation. 
we think that if prayer goes back, not, not, please let me hear this. My kids go to public school and I want them to be able to pray at school. Okay, so I'm not against prayer in schools. But he, do you see the difference between wanting prayer in schools and then using it as a charm or a weapon to throw at God? We sometimes think that if prayer goes back into schools, that if employees at Starbucks actually say Merry Christmas and Chris, keep Chris, Christ in Christmas or insert any other Christian artifact of choice, as if these things happen, then God will finally bless our nation. Am I saying that we don't need God? Absolutely not. But our God is not to be trifled with. Certainly, our God is not to be used for political gain. And that's exactly what the Israelites were doing here. They were showing God off as if they were better because of that. On the other side, lest you think I'm picking on one side, those who, there are those who are prone to just putting God on the shelf. They think they've already defeated God. They have no use for God or His Word or His commandments. They think that the mere idea of God is outdated and actually offensive. They want tolerance as long as it affirms their ever-evolving set of rules. And this is also offensive to God. God is not to be trifled with. God is not to be put on the shelf and ignored. Church, let us guard ourselves from thinking we can use God as a means to an end. God doesn't allow us to use Him as a talisman. He is not a weapon to yield. God is not a means to an end. He is our King. God wants to be known by us as the mighty King that He is. He also wants to be known as a loving Father who describes himself as patient, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Isn't this amazing? That the king of the universe wants to be known by you. Unfaithful you. Foolish you. Weak you. He wants to be known by you. Not because you deserve it, but because he loves you. Dear church, this passage shows us that the greatest problem in our relationship with God is ourselves. Our biggest obstacle is our sin and our unfaithful hearts. Left to ourselves, there is no way for us to know God. If God didn't want to disclose himself to us, we wouldn't know him. The good news is that not only does he want to be known by you, but he has made a way for you and for me to be saved and to be adopted into his family. He has made a way for you to be forgiven. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect life that you and I are so unable to live. And he died the death that you and I deserve. And church, this demands a response. This, is not, this does not allow for us to be apathetic. This demands a response from us. And so this morning, I think there are two ways in which we can respond. Number one, for those of you that may not yet know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. If this morning you feel the Lord drawing you to Himself, if you think He is calling you to repentance, at the end of the service, I want you to come talk to me, talk to Tim, 
talk to one of the elders. Elders, can you raise your hands? Uh, so look around. I want you to see. Come talk to us. If the Lord is, 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 is drawing you to himself, we want to talk to you. We want to pray with you. We want to grab coffee with you and, and try to you know, help you figure out what this means. The second way in which we want us to respond is for all of us corporately. And that is by remembering Christ today and his sacrifice. For those of you that already know Christ, and I do want to be specific here, this is not a matter of exclusivity, but I do, I do mean this. This is only for those that have already called upon the name of Jesus. If that is you, this morning I want you to grab the elements. You were handed, and if you don't yet have one, raise your hand, and Jeff will be kind enough to bring you one. But this morning, we will remember Christ for what he has done for us through the sacrament of communion. This point of the service may be my favorite part. Because up until now, I've been lonely here preaching. <laughs> but at this point, in this moment, we all become preachers. Because in this moment, we will all proclaim what Christ did for us. In the words of Paul, we will proclaim his death until he comes again. And so if you would open your elements and take the bread, and the night when he was betrayed, after he had given thanks, the Lord Jesus took the bread and he broke it, and he said, do this in remembrance of me. Would you please partake of the bread? He then took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant of my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us partake of the cup. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul tells us that as we partake of these elements, that as we eat of the, of the, uh, of the bread and of the cup, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes back which implies that he is coming back. Yeah. He is coming back for those who are his. Mm -hmm. This is a symbol. And this is a sacrament that we do to remember the Lord's sacrifice for us as his children. May we also live according to it. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, this morning we thank you for sending your son Jesus Father, for when we were dead in our sins and our trespasses, you sent your Son. And you forgave us, Lord. Father, this morning we want to proclaim to the world that we are, that we are yours. And that we are saved, not because there's anything in us that's even savable, but because you are God and because you are good. This morning we worship you, Lord. And at this point, Lord, we want to respond to your goodness by singing to your name. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.